0: The main reason that small churches in America are small is because our governmental structure in the American church is not biblical, it's American. So we view the pastor as a hireling, and we say things like, well, you work for us, and we're your boss, and God can't move in a setting that's not structured the way he said to structure it. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested
1: in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, one of the co-hosts, and with me is Shelly Riggs-Jordan from our Southeast office. Hey, Shelly.
2: Hey, Matt. It's good to be with you today.
1: Good to be with you as well. Very much looking forward to getting to the interview. We had a great conversation with Dale Sellers. We'll tell you a little bit more about him later, but really the topic of today is about kind of small to mid-sized congregations. And a lot of times when we say that, That can sound pejorative, or if somebody falls within that range, they might feel bad that they're in that range. But that's one of the things I think we want to do with this episode of the podcast is disabuse the notion that that's a bad thing. So as we open up today, we want to talk about just kind of how our work intersects with what we would consider small to mid-sized congregations. And what we mean by that is maybe anywhere between 30 people in a congregation, maybe up to 150 or 200. Shelly, how is your work intersected with congregations of that size, and what are some of the things that appear in conversations you have with those congregations?
2: You know, I think in Indiana in general, there's a lot of smaller congregations, and I think they often feel like they're doing something wrong because they're smaller. And one of the things I always say is there's something really magical about a smaller congregation sometimes. You know, they have kind of built-in opportunity for community and family that a lot of larger congregations have to work really hard to get to. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of really special gifts in smaller congregations. But you know, we made it through the 80s where bigger was better and that kind of stuck in our mind. And (laughs) it's not always true. It's not always true. So I think just reminding congregations that whatever size you are, you can still do great things.
1: Mm -hmm. A lot of times when I have conversations with smaller congregations, there does seem to be this sense of lament or, you know, wishing that things were different. And in a lot of the work that we do, As we've intersected with smaller congregations, especially in what we call our special grant initiatives, where they want to take on a project for community ministry or youth ministry or something like that, one of the things that we're big believers in is what we call finding your assets. And there's this exercise called asset mapping. And it's so fun to see a congregation, really any congregation, but especially congregations that maybe have a not so great view of themselves list out everything that they have as assets. I'll never forget, I walked into a small congregation up in Angola, Indiana, and they had done their asset mapping exercise for a community ministry initiative, and they still had everything up on their whiteboard. And that whiteboard was full, I mean, (laughs) full of assets. And I just stood there and looked at it and just, you know, congratulated them on just being eyes wide open about all of the things that they had to offer. And that really moved them in a really positive direction as they looked at community ministry. And so I think just reminding congregations really of any size, there are so many things that you have at your disposal. You may not even realize what's sitting in your pews or what's in your community that you can utilize.
2: Mm, That's such a good point, Matt. This shift from scarcity to abundance. I think that's what the asset mapping helps people see. We really do have a lot of gifts. We really do have a lot of things that we can utilize. So yeah, that's such a great exercise. Thanks for that story.
1: Yeah, it was just a really fun moment for me. And it was just great to see the joy in them for realizing (laughs) all that they had to offer. It was really cool.
2: Hey, we can do this. Yeah, that's so cool. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, yeah. And some of the things that I hear is just, you know, concern about, you know, the fact that we're, you know, maybe we're shrinking. We don't have as many people as we used to. We don't have as many young people. I remember in a conversation we had with Alan Statton, who is a guy who focuses on small rural congregations. I'll talk about something that he's doing as a resource later in the episode. But I remember him talking about helping congregations do demographic studies of their surrounding community and county. And it's like, well, it's no wonder you don't have many young people because there really aren't any here. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes. It's not that you're not attracting them. It's they don't live here.
1: Yeah. 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 And just the sense that, like, there's nothing wrong with being a really good church for boomers. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Right. That's an important thing. It is. It is.
1: So something that we just want to do on the front end of this episode is provide encouragement that no matter what size of congregation you are, and maybe you're part of our audience that is a 1500 member congregation. I think a lot of this does still really apply, but 95 Network focuses on small to mid sized congregations. And I'll let Dale in the interview talk about where the name came from. I think it's really cool and a really eye-opening statistic. So next, you'll be hearing us in a conversation with Dale Sellers, who is the executive director of 95 Network. We think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. And we are so glad to have with us Dale Sellers from 95 Network. Dale has been in ministry for 40 years and was part of the Unstuck Group as a consultant for them before joining 95 Network. So we're so excited, Dale, to have you here. Thanks for being here with us.
0: Man, I'm glad to be here.
1: So, Dale, tell us a little bit about 95 Network. And I love what the name signifies, but I'd love for our audience to understand that
0: as well. Well, I'm glad you understand (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't actually name 95 Network. Once we explain it, it's great. So of the 300,000 churches in America, 95% of them are considered to be smaller mid sized. Those numbers basically mean that about 95% of the churches are under 500 in attendance, 87% are under 200 in attendance, and 75% of all the churches in America have less than 100 people attending. And those are pre-pandemic numbers. So reduce everything by 30% and it'll be more accurate. And so our passion in 95 Network is to work With small and mid sized churches.
1: Yeah. And just as you demonstrate from the statistics, I mean, that's the overwhelming majority of congregations. And I think those congregations can often get overlooked. And we've even realized in the last five or six years at the Center for Congregations that we need a much tighter focus on those congregations because there are so many. And, you know, we say congregations always deserve more support than they get, but congregations of that size are definitely in that space because. As I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dale, but the leadership of those congregations, there's such a heavier burden on clergy in those congregations because they have to play so many roles. Is that accurate?
0: It's totally accurate, Matt. I I pastored a small church for 12 years. It grew from 30 to 300 to 150 in the eighth year. We had a terrible split, and then four years later, we closed it. So mm-hmm. I pastored a church for twelve years that ended up closing because it wasn't healthy enough to hand off. And what I've recognized, and I've been part of big churches, I've been on the road with music groups, I've seen a lot of the body of Christ, many different denominations. But what I noticed was is that most of the conferences, most of the materials available are for large mega churches or even you know healthy mid sized churches. And the key to those is they have teams. Whereas in a small church, you don't have teams. You have to lead volunteers. And I've always said leading volunteers is the hardest job on the earth because you can say, hey, we're going over here. And they can go, no, we're not. And you don't have a recourse. And, you know, you marry that with the fact that most small church, and not just small church, most pastors were not trained on how to lead. They know how to preach. They know theology. They can study Greek and Hebrew, but they don't know how to do board meetings. And so my passion is to come along beside those folks Just because of really the pain I experienced when I pastored a small church.
2: I think that's fantastic. And I think that's really good insight because it, as a small church pastor, almost leaves you feeling like you're doing something wrong. Well, how come my church isn't growing to this mega church? Well, maybe your church was never meant to be that size. There's a real beauty in this small community that you're pastoring. And I think that what you're doing then is celebrating that instead of leaving them feeling like, okay, I'm failing.
0: Uh, At 95 Network, our biggest passion is health first. We want your church to be healthy. And we say this, a healthy pastor can create a healthy ministry. But if a pastor's unhealthy, it's never going to get healthy. And our thing about numbers, I mean, you know, we all live in the residue of the seeker and attractional movements. It still permeates all of our thinking. And so when we talk about numbers, it's just a way to reference where you are. We want you to be healthy first. But I will tell you this. I'm not one of the guys that just says, well, if you're small, just stay small till Jesus comes. (laughs) I believe that as long as there's a lost soul in your town, you're not done. You know, even referencing what you said there, when we get defeated on the inside, we tend to quit reaching out. We quit casting vision if we ever had one. And so we get kind of stagnant. And so the health is our first key at 95 Network.
1: Yeah. And I'm curious, Dale, you know, probably just demographically speaking, most of the listeners to this podcast are in that 75%, 85% range. I think they would be interested in hearing what are some examples or what are the benefits of a really healthy, small congregation? Like, what do you see that are hallmarks of that congregation, ways that it flourishes, ways that it really shines?
0: I like to say this, we referenced this. Uh, there's this book called the Bible, and there's a fellow in it named <laughs> Jesus. And he started this thing called the the church. And in Ephesians 4, through his friend Paul, he told us exactly how to do it. So Ephesians 4 11 through 16, that is the makeup of how the small church, or the church, I should say, was designed to be run. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you these gifts. And he listed these gifts. And then he said, Their job is to equip saints to do ministry. Mm-hmm. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. We don't do that for two reasons. We either don't do it because we need to be needed. And so small church pastors will often do everything themselves. You know, they'll be out cutting the grass with a push mower on a five acre lot. And the board member comes by and pats him on the back and says, you're such a good pastor. That's not good pastor. He needs to be cutting the grass or either pay for somebody to do it. Mm -hmm. But we do it all because we need to fill our emotional tank. A lot of us have a, what I call approval addiction. It's in my book. We can talk about that later. But, mm-hmm. you know, we do what we do to be approved, to fill our emotional taint, because as you referenced earlier, we feel less than or something's wrong on the inside. But really, the main reason that small churches in America are small is because our governmental structure in the American church is not biblical. It's American. So we view the pastor as a hireling and we say things like, well, you work for us and we're your boss. And God can't move in a setting that's not structured the way he said to structure it. So to answer your question in a long way, it's easier to become an equipper in a small church than it is in a big church. Because you've only got a handful of people you can hand things off to. So develop relationships with them, build relationships with them, empower them, give them opportunities to try things, and then, you know, sit down and talk about how it's going. It's much easier, but we have to change our mindset. And honestly, guys, I believe with all my heart we're in the midst of a reformation. So, how we do church moving forward from this point here in July as we record this of 2023, the church and how it relates, does everything about it, is going to change so dramatically. In the years moving forward, that we have an opportunity to revamp how we do things.
2: And I think it's not just the pastor's mindset that has to change. Sometimes as you come out of seminary and you're brand new, the congregation's idea of who you should or shouldn't be really shapes your ministry a lot of times because you don't know any better. And so you end up in this role that you never imagined pastoring would be when you were in seminary.
0: One of the big mistakes we see is churches think, oh, we need to get some young people in here. Well, you know, we don't have any young. So they'll hire a young person and then not let that person lead. (laughs) So basically they think because, you know, the young person is 30 or under that they're a magnet that's going to attract people. But here's the thing. If the church doesn't change how it does things, it's not going to keep people it draws because things change. When you spend more time talking about what God did in your church than what God's doing, you know you're stuck in the past. Mm -hmm. And we see this so often, churches in the rural setting, and the small setting, where there's this handful of people, and honestly, they just want to do church the way they want to do church, and they're not too concerned about reaching anybody. And so I think what you're seeing, and I don't have the documentation to back this up, it's just my belief, is I assume most young church leaders would rather go start something new then move into something that's established old and it's already kind of going over the waterfall, if I can say it like that.
2: (laughs) That's quite the image. (laughs) And instead of being like, oh my goodness, everybody's like, (laughs) woo!
0: You said that, I didn't.
1: (laughs) I would imagine, Dale, that that can be daunting though. So there may be a leader that recognizes the shift that needs to happen, the equipping that needs to happen, and the recognition of their congregation that we together are the body and we together are equipped for ministry. How do you even begin to take those steps to move the ship in that direction?
0: From a younger or middle-aged leader's perspective, you've got to become friends with the influencers. You've got to spend time with the influencers. You're there to pastor them. I remember hearing, I had this guy named Jeff Clark. He works with rural churches on our podcast. And he said this, he said, before you ask them to sit in your pew, you got to go sit on their couch. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was great wisdom. You can't lead people in a vacuum. You got to get to know them. It's sometimes not a pleasant experience. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, as the leader, we've got to change, but change is hard for anybody, but specifically those in, the church world that have been leading forever they often don't want to change and one of our teammates at 95 network who does our discipleship coaching matt adair talked about this he said you know one of the things that happens in the church is we don't recognize or realize that sometimes some of those what we call older—they don't have to be older—but the mean people in our church, they had a trauma or a problem or something that happened in their life, and because our discipleship processes are more educational than actually life issues, no one's ever addressed those things, and so sometimes that anger toward you has nothing to do with you. Sometimes it has something to do with that happened to them a long time ago. They've never dealt with. And so our discipleship process has typically been to learn more of the Bible and more educational. And I'm not anti-educational and I'm not anti-learning more about the Bible. But I think oftentimes we get a lot of head knowledge, but it doesn't change our heart. And we've got to apply what we're teaching people so that they can realize, hey, did you know that all these people that don't have a relationship with God, they're going to spend eternity somewhere. And it's our responsibility to impact them.
2: Can I just say, uh, Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like her a lot. She's fun.
1: We'll keep her. We like her too. Uh, thank yeah, Matt.
0: you. Thank you. She's more fun than you are, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> I would agree with that. I would agree with that assessment. You guys are funny.
2: I think part of that has to do with what you were talking about earlier, how Americanized things have become. Because in America, we're about doing. We're not about being. But what you're talking about, Dale, is being in relationship with one another, being in relationship with God, and that is very different than doing. I'm a human being. I'm not a human doing, but that's how we define ourselves.
0: It dives into the heart of why I wrote the book that I wrote because I grew up in South Carolina in a Baptist church and the Baptist teaches you're saved by grace through faith, free gift, free gift, free gift. You can't do anything to make God love you anymore. You can't do anything to make God love you any less. Then you spend the rest of your life proving your salvation by your works. Well, because of me being a firstborn, growing up, building houses with my dad. And my dad, I learned this as I've gotten older. My dad and I worked great together, but I'm highly verbal, as you can tell. Dad wasn't. And so he never talked to me. So like if you guys hired me to do a job for you, you know, let's say I came and remodeled your studio there. My dad would stand and brag on me to you all day long, but he never bragged on me to me. Mm. My dad told me three times I love you and all three times were in church services where they made them do that. And the last time he didn't even get it out. It was just like, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, and he starts crying, but I count that one because I needed that, okay? Well, I needed my dad to verbally approve me. I needed my dad to say, hey, you're doing a good job. I'm proud of you. He never did that. So what I did was I started working harder, Mm -hmm. doing more, even in construction, to get him to notice me, and he never did. Well, that shifted into my walk with God. So I got to a place, especially being a small church pastor, where no matter what I did, I felt like a failure. Hmm. And again, because of the residue of the secret and attraction movements, I didn't build a mega church. So Matt, if you and I had gone to school together, and this is literally true, it's happened. If you and your wife were in a restaurant and my wife and I walked in and saw you, if I could duck out before you saw me, I would leave. Because I didn't want to see you. Because if your church was successful and mine wasn't, I was embarrassed. It wasn't you. It was me. Mm. Mm. I had this mentality and this belief that Jesus was mad at me. I literally used to pray every day, Jesus, please don't come back today. Or please don't let me die till I fulfill my purpose. Mm. I had so much guilt, so much pressure, so much shame, felt like a failure. But the thing was, though, I never knew what the purpose was. You know, it's like ambiguous out there, but it led me to having quadruple bypass surgery at
2: 53.
0: Oh, my. I'm 61 today, and I had quadruple bypass. I spent Christmas in 2015 in an ICU, and I asked my surgeon, I said, okay, tell me how this happened to me. I had a, what they call a widowmaker. I was completely blocked in one artery, 100%, and 90% blocked in three others and didn't know it. And I said, how did this happen to me? I said, you know, I mean, I'm not severely overweight. There's no heart disease in our family. And I never smoked except in high school for six months. <laughs> but I didn't inhale because that's terrible for you. You know, I didn't know that I went to college. People inhaled smoke. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, Pat, what? what happened to me? And he said, hypertension and high blood pressure because of your vocation. Mm. I said, are you saying the ministry almost killed me? He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. And so I had to go and begin on a soul searching, which led to me writing the book Stalled because the subtitle of my book Stalled is Hope and Help for Pastors Who Thought They'd Be There By Now. That comes from an article I wrote in 2014 for the Unstuck Group. They published it and it was called, I Thought I'd Be There By Now, Confessions of a Small Church Pastor. They published it and I heard from pastors all over America going, that's exactly how I feel. Mm -hmm. And so I had to start working through some stuff. And then two years ago this week, my wife and my daughters got caught in a rip current and almost drowned for the second time in 15 years. And that broke me, I ended up in counseling down in Dallas. And I had to really begin to work through some of this stuff and understanding, you know what? Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, I taught that, but I thought I was the exception to that Mm -hmm. because he was Mm -hmm. disappointed with me because I hadn't built a big church yet and I hadn't reached the world. In other words, I was a stinking mess.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you were right where he wanted you to be so that God could help put you back together. (laughs)
0: i tell you what, man, I feel like Humpty Dumpty
2: sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) You said the ministry almost killed me. I think that's a profound statement in many ways because we think our ministries are this healing, health-giving thing, but very often— They're killing things that were intended to grow. We see millennials not coming back. We see people not returning from COVID. And I think one of the questions that the American church needs to start asking itself is, are we healthy? Are we worth coming back for? And are we growing people and their knowledge of God? Or are we killing things that we're not supposed to be killing?
0: I wrote an article when the pandemic happened called Seven Years and Seven Weeks. And the heartbeat behind the article was this. We were already working with these particular churches before the pandemic, trying to get them to update, trying to get them to change, trying to get them to, you know, establish mission and vision and the things you need to do to know where you're going. And churches were like, oh, I'll get to it someday, you know. And here's the key. With small churches, there's no accountability and we don't follow through and there's no accountability and nobody does anything about it. So we say we're going to do things, we don't do them and it nothing matters. Well it does matter because we're not reaching people. But so what happened was, you know, that we had all shut down, you know, in March 2020. And so where we were was we had Easter as a distraction back then. If you remember, when they asked us all to close our churches, we're just like, let's figure out Easter. So all the churches put all this energy in how to do online or how to do an in-person or thing out in the parking lot or, you know, real just inventive ways of connecting with community. So we all focused on Easter, but I saw this happen. After Easter was over with, pastors were like, well, now what? Hey, we're American. This thing's supposed to be over and it's not over.
2: (laughs) Yes. And
0: they went into depression. And what happened was pastors begin to figure out, and this is exactly where we are and what you were referring to. We figured out in seven weeks where we would have been in seven years, mm. but the pandemic sped it up. The pandemic has not closed, will not close one church. The pandemic was an accelerator. And if you were on the right track before, then you got through it. It wasn't painless, but you got through it. But if you were on the wrong track, you got exposed. And no one has been more devastated during the pandemic and the response to the pandemic than small church pastors because every decision they made was wrong. If you meet in person, then you're unloving. If you don't meet in person, then the devil's directing your ministry. If you wear a mask, you're in fear. If you don't wear a mask, you don't care about people. Whatever they decided was wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, guys, I know of three churches during the racial issues, pastor preached a message on racial reconciliation and all three of those guys were fired that afternoon.
2: Oh my gosh.
0: I mean, that's a lot of what we've been dealing with. That's why I tell you, which referring to what you said, we're in a reformation. And how we did church in 2020 will not work moving forward. And Matt, that's why we're doing this soul care conference we're doing. It's because pastors are like, they don't know what to do anymore. And so either, either quitting or what I'm seeing more of now is they're like, you know what? They're going to double down and still keep doing what they always did. And it doesn't work.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I wonder then, as you think about, that's the place a lot of small church pastors are Mm -hmm. and they recognize there needs to be change. And you talked about building relationship is the key to that. Mm -hmm. Building relationship maybe with the influencers or with other leaders in your congregation. I mean, do you think the pandemic helped convince people that we do need to change or do you think that there are people just digging in their heels saying
0: oh no it didn't convince the church people that that's why i just saw this last week 40 million people have not come back to church Mm -hmm. no longer attending church anymore and here's what you have to deal with okay we can say that those people are just a bunch of godless people but come on now this is the people who were making up our church before the pandemic and -hmm. what i've said is this we weren't connecting with them before the pandemic they just came because they came But here's what happened. This is a great example. So here you are, let's just say you're a young dad and you've got a seven, five and a three-year-old son, okay? And every Sunday, your life is this. You get up at six in the morning and you start yelling at the kids and you try to get them to get ready and they can't find their clothes. And it's just a yell match, scream match. You threaten them on the way to church. The youngest one throws his shoe out the window. You got to stop and get it. He gets to church that day and you threaten them within an the inch of their life if they disrupt or <laughs> cause a problem. Then you finish church, you rally them around, you go to the restaurant, then you destroy a restaurant. There's food everywhere. And that guy goes home, he you know, gets the kids to play and he gets a two-hour nap he gets up tomorrow morning on Monday and he works eighty hours, and next Sunday he does it all again. Suddenly, this guy discovered a thing called Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, all of a sudden, his life is like, you know, wait a minute, maybe I need to rest. And so, I'm not anti meeting. I'm not anti meeting in person, but we can't just keep blaming everybody that's not coming back as sinful. Some of them discovered Sabbath. Right. And which is a biblical principle, which, by the way, side note, this is the biggest area I get pushback in our soul care conference. When I tell pastors that God expects them to Sabbath. So another conversation. So anyway, this guy discovers, hey, you know what? I feel better. I'm more connected to my family. And so they sit down together, watch an online service, and then they experience Sabbath. I'm not saying they shouldn't come back and meet in person, but if you're going to pull that family to your church, please make it worth their while. Yes. Again, you got me on, so here we go. <laughs> most of our pastors are not trained to lead. Yes. Most of our pastors are not trained to equip. Our pastors are trained to preach. And if your preaching is not equipping, then you're missing the point of it. In most churches, the biggest discipleship moment is the service. And so you've got to equip people. you got to train them, help them find their gifts, and then give them avenues and opportunities to implement those gifts. We don't do that. And so that's why we're so unhealthy. Can you tell you hit a nerve?
2: I like Sorry. it. It's the Sorry, same guys. nerve that the American church dances on for me too.
0: <laughs> well, you see, here's the deal. We lost our dance floor. Yep. So when the pandemic started loosening back up, the stadiums were full. The concerts were full. The malls were full. Everything in society came back to at least the same numbers it had before or more. But one glaring group did not, and that was the church and so what we did was we said well all these people that aren't they just don't love jesus that's just not true they just some of them got a grip on life Mm -hmm. and began to recognize you know what i need it to be more meaningful and again we're talking about small churches now we're telling small church pastors you need to make your services more engaging you need to be online and they're like guys i'm already behind in 20 other areas you're just piling on Mm -hmm. so here's the thing this is the quote i want to get in here today to me it's the most important one in most small churches we do 20 things poorly instead of one or two things well. Mm. And what we need to do is look at our unique gifts, what the Lord Jesus has called us to do with our lives. We need to look at our mission, our vision, and then we need to look at our particular congregation and we need to engage in our community where we are with who we are. The great commission is everybody's mission. But how you carry it out is based on your personality, where you live. you know, I probably wouldn't be very popular if I pastored in Indiana, but I can get away with it here in South Carolina because I'm a country bumpkin. And again, (laughs) it goes back to comparison. I talk about this in the book. If you pastor a church of 80 and down the road five miles is a church of 2,000, you cannot offer the same things that church offers. You don't have the resources, the room, the people. You know, you don't have any of that stuff. And you're not called to. You're called to be the best version of you. And so what we do at 95 Denver is we're trying to give you permission to be who he created you to be.
2: I love that because the ministry pool is not limited. There is enough work to do for everybody.
0: Oh, sister, you are <laughs> preaching to the choir. That's what exactly right. Here's the thing. So I always say this. We're not down here on earth praying to, in heaven saying, God, would you please help us? And him crossing his arms going, no, I don't want to bless you. I believe with all my heart, he's waiting for us to have enough faith to come along beside him and do what he's equipped us to do. But we can't do it independent of him. And I think this is what happened to me. So often, uh, man, I felt like I would get a leading from the Lord to do something. And then it would be like, "Okay, I got it. I'll see you later. (laughs) And I'd take off. And he's like, no, we're not going to do it that way. You got to walk in step with me. And so he's not up in heaven going, I don't want to bless you. He's waiting for us to do it the way he told us to do it.
1: Yeah, I'd like to go back to something that we mentioned about earlier where, Dale, where you talked about, you know, the ministry was what was killing you. Mm -hmm. And also you've talked about how congregations need to be a more relational space, less business, more relationship and I've had this suspicion that boomer generation pastors, and by the way, this is not a diatribe against boomer generation, so please don't hear that, but boomer generation pastors grew up in this time where leaders were supposed to be bulletproof, mm-hmm. that you're not allowed to have problems. You shouldn't have problems because then we lose faith in who you are.
0: They were taught at seminary.
1: Yeah. And I've noticed the phenomenon that younger people seem drawn to more vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I see that sense of needing to be bulletproof as a leader as being absolutely antithetical to the ability to form relationship and the ability to lead people in the ways where you're equipping them because it's like you're the leader, you're bulletproof, that's your job. We're just kind of supposed to bathe in your reflected glory (laughs) in some way.
0: Your own point.
1: Yeah. So I imagine the culture of a lot of smaller congregations still, the average age is, you know, older Xers, younger boomers, might still have that perception. How do you begin to change that perception and move to a place where the leader is allowed to be a human being?
0: Well, first of all, we need to address this. The youngest baby boomer is 57. Hmm. So they've been your givers, they've been your attenders, they've been your servers. They're dying. And the way we still do church in most places in America is related to everything you just described. So one of the dynamics that has changed how we communicate is this thing here called the cell phone. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when I grew up, there would be pastors who would, this is a hard way to say this. They fibbed a little bit and some of the things that they did because they wanted to get people to act a certain way. And I don't want to go into any of those issues, but I'm just saying sometimes they would stretch things. You can't do that anymore because I can pull up a phone and Google you while you're preaching. So you can't just make up what you want to make up and say what you want to say. you got to be accurate. If you don't, if you aren't accurate, then you are not going to connect with the next gens, the multiple next gens, because they're looking for authenticity. And they are so skeptical of leadership. I mean, look at the political life they've grown up in and for the last, you know, several dozen years. It's just chaos. And so they're looking for something to anchor them that is not chaotic. And so they're looking for authentic leaders. Those pastors you were referring to, when they began ministry, people came to church because you came to church because you came to church. Mm -hmm. Those days are gone. A pastor, when I first started leading 95 Network, he made this statement. I'll never forget. He says, when I see something I don't understand, I just avoid it.
2: Oh, wow.
0: And I'm like, that's not good, bro. (laughs) You know? So here's what happens. This happened to me as a pastor. While I'm pastoring, I reached a point where I was not doing well on the inside. And we were taught you're supposed to be bulletproof. Seminary professors have said things like, if you'll take care of God's family, he'll take care of your family, which is bull. It's not true. They've been taught that. They've been told they're supposed to be bulletproof. But I want to come from the congregational side. I reached out to one of my board members at one point. And we went to lunch and I said, listen, I need to talk to somebody today. And he and I used to hunt together. We were pretty good friends. Our families did stuff together. And I take this guy to lunch. This is a true story. We're sitting at lunch and I said, listen, I'd like to talk to you today about some things I'm dealing with. I'm not immoral, I haven't fallen into sin, but I'm just not doing well. And he put his hand up in my face and said, stop pastor. He said, stop, I can't hear this. My life is a disaster and I need your life to be perfect. So please don't tell me. And guys, I walked away going, well, I guess that means that we're not supposed to be transparent. Wow. Mm -hmm. I guess that means we're not supposed to be honest. And so, you know, I went inside because I didn't want to come unload everything on my family. You know, I felt a huge responsibility for my three daughters to grow up to love the church. They didn't know a lot of the underbelly of the ministry. And I didn't want to unload all that on my wife. So I internalized it. But you know what? You can't internalize it. Mine turned out to be a widowmaker that should have taken me out if we hadn't found it when we did. And so that's the issue, Matt, is that we aren't bulletproof. And one of the cool things that's happening, this is the first time I've ever seen this in my life, pastors are actually reaching out for help. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a strategic partner called the Full Strength Network, and they literally have had to create a waiting list because they've had so many pastors reach out. You know, at 95 Network, I've done multiple podcasts about trauma and stress, and I've talked about what I went through when I almost drowned and how I ended up, it broke me. I ended up in counseling for a week down in Dallas because I couldn't put it back together again. And so we do live in a generation now when it's okay to say I'm not okay. But for a lot of us who've been in ministry as long as I have, that is so contrary to the way we were trained. It's so contrary to, look, to what our churches expect of us, and it's killing us.
2: That's so sad to me because the reality is had you opened up and he had heard, hey, my pastor's got some of the same struggles as me, it would have helped both of you to navigate life better.
0: It would have, but as life went on, it would have also revealed he had a secret life I didn't know about. Ah,
2: well, then that was on him, not you. But yeah, Yeah, like here you are as a pastor. Hey, I need some help. And the first person you turn to says, "Mm, it's not me. I think that happens a lot.
0: I would join networks, and when I'd get part of a pastor network, it was always just like a dog and pony show. Everybody's, you know, how many did you have? Well, we had 207. How many did you have? We had 220. I mean, just that whole thing, you know, just comparing, you know, I just tell every church when they come to our conferences, I tell them up front, listen, today, if anybody asks you how many people you have in your church, just say about a 1,000. <laughs> it, it levels the playing field. That's and,
2: awesome.
0: <laughs> because, again, that's the residue of the yep. secret and attractional thing. You, you know, yep. numbers don't reflect health. No, no. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying big churches are unhealthy. I'm just saying there was a mistake from the 80s, guys. And I know you've heard this. We used to say that the church growth movement said this all the time. Well, healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. Don't go to Iowa and say that because I was in Iowa and this pastor said, don't you dare say healthy things grow as a sign of God's favor. Because he said unhealthy things grow too. Blight on crops, Mm -hmm. cancer. You know, there's a lot of unhealthy things that grow too. So I bought this lie that said, well, we must not be healthy because I'm not growing, you know. And it wasn't that. I wasn't equipped. I wasn't trained. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. You know what? I was asked to do something that I had no idea of what I was doing. And here's what I did. And so many of your leaders listening right now that you do this every week, you wear yourself out to try to defer the attention, the spotlight into another area of life so that people can't see you have no idea what you're doing. And that's what I did. And I painted myself into a corner and I wore myself out. And then all of a sudden, every fear I had, the spotlight, when I got in the corner, it just shined brightly on me. And so when our church split, it was my fault. It wasn't because of immorality. It was because I didn't know how to lead. Mm. And it caught up with me. And that was the beginning of my heart issues. I thought I was going to die from stress just those few days of that church split. So if you've been through a church split, I just want you to know that I love you and I understand. And if you have not done so, you got to go get counseling because it doesn't go away. Trauma does not leave you. It just cycles in your mind.
2: Your body takes it on because your mind won't deal with it.
0: Yes, ma'am. You're dead on. Yep. Y'all are smart. Y'all are really smart. It's <laughs> <laughs> been, been fun interviewing you today. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate
1: that. Dale. Thanks, thanks for inviting us on, Dale. I think it's the perfect time to turn to your book because I love the subtitle "Hope and Help for Pastors Who Thought They'd Be There by Now." And as you've demonstrated from your personal journey, you know that's kind of your experience. So, what are some words of encouragement? Words of help? Talk a little bit about your book and how that could be beneficial for people who are in this
0: space. When I set the book up, I talk about the fact that there's people who get this what I call the look. And and honestly, if I meet you for the first time, I can tell real quick where you are just by the look on your face. Either you're drained or you're discouraged or you're stressed. And I developed that look. And that look was that I was a failure or I had failed and it failure defined me. Mm. And again, this is all personal. My, My wife didn't know how I felt. When My wife read my book. She cried because she said, I never knew. You felt this way about yourself because I'm too busy out front leading everybody. I've got this go get them personality. But on the inside, I felt I had all this stress. I felt like this great pressure. You know, I talk about the fact that, you know, comparison was a huge deal to me. As I referred to earlier, Matt, you know, if I compared myself to you and and I'm going to tell you a really funny thing. I would pray sometimes. I go, Jesus, I know, Matt. Why are you blessing him? He's no good. He can't lead. I mean, those are the kind of prayers I prayed. <laughs> I don't get it. But I had bought into this whole facade of the attractional secret. And again, I've said that so much. I'm not being critical of doing what it takes to reach people. But Jesus didn't call us to go and make converts. He told us to make disciples. He didn't say, you know, create us a ministry where they come and see. He told us to go and tell. And our ministries have been so sterile of being relational in my entire lifetime, we talk about discipleship. We don't do discipleship. We do education. Again, you know, we, we teach stuff. But discipleship is relational. That's what Jesus did. It's relational. And for to be relational and at work, I got to be transparent. I got to let you know me. And so I wouldn't let you know me because I didn't think you'd like me or that I didn't keep up with this image. But one of the things I talk about in the book is the difference between transformation and Transportation. You know, in Romans twelve, two, it talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it, you know, compares a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. I was more interested in transportation. I was more interested in how I looked in the journey
2: mm. than
0: actually being transformed in the journey. I see so many pastors this way. And so I got to this place to where I was ashamed, I was disappointed. You know, I break the book into three categories. I talk about why can't I get there? And then I talk about in the second section, what will I find there? You know, wherever there is. And then the last section is on the fulfillment of living there. The problem is Dale couldn't have find where there was. So when I say I thought I'd be there by now, I couldn't have find it. And it all happens because of a conversation with Tony Morgan. When I worked at Unstuck, we're talking one day and he's just like, uh, I told him, I said, Tony, I said, I just, I just feel like such a failure because I I can't get there. And he's like, Dale, I, I, you're not a failure. I mean, he was like trying to bless me and speak positive things to my life, but it didn't matter because here's the deal. This is the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's all you know, Bible for you there. Faith comes by hearing. So what you hear is what you believe.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: There's no one you believe more than yourself. Yeah, I have a thousand people tell me, Dale, you're a great pastor, you're a great leader, you're doing such a great work, but all I have to say one time is no, I'm not. And I'm always gonna believe me. That's where pastors are today because of comparison or issues of growing up or trauma or multiple things. We're a stinking mess. And I believe, I don't believe the Lord necessarily created the pandemic, but I can tell you he's redeeming it. And I believe we're in a Gideon phase of ministry. If you study Gideon, remember how when Gideon finally said, okay, yes, God, I'll do what you want. He gets an army of over 30,000. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let you go out. He said, because if you guys go and win and you beat the Mennonites with that army, you'll take credit for it. So he carries it down to 10,000. No, no, no. Army's way too big. Takes it down to 300. What does it say? Who would basically do it the way God said, do it. Mm -hmm. And all this was about how they drank water. (laughs) You know, so that's where we are today. There are going to be thousands more have already been thousands of folks leave ministry because of unhealthy issues. And some of that is necessary. I have no problem with people taking time off I took five years off after our church split and I went and worked construction because I had to get my head screwed back on right. And you still find out what a mess I was. (laughs) I didn't get it screwed back on right. And so what has to happen is you can't be that person that says the things I don't understand, I just avoid. Right. You know, when we grew up, you know, I'm 60. We used to go on the playground. We had this thing called a tether ball. Yes. You know, it's a ball on a rope and you'd hit it and wind it tight. That's where most pastors in America are. And now they're wound tight and they don't know what to do. Well, don't go, you know, knock a hole in the ball and let the air out. Unwind, y'all. Unwind. It's okay. And if your church won't let you, find another church because there's more churches today that need pastors than there are pastors.
2: That's great advice. One of my favorite singer-songwriters has a line in his song that says, you don't need to tell me how to kill the fun. I've got a head full of sharp knives. (laughs) Like, I love that because I think that's true about a lot of us. You try and give me a compliment and I'll shred that sucker before it gets in.
0: Think about it. If we were healthy and we enjoyed life and we enjoyed our marriage and we enjoyed our children, then wouldn't we model a healthy example for our congregations? Yes, sir. But just to be honest with you, I just don't think we're drawing many people in who don't have a relationship with God because they don't see anything that we have in our life they are missing in theirs. And that needs to change. Because back to what we started today, what I believe to be true, there is no plan B.
2: Mm.
0: This is all there is. This is as good as it gets. Look right here. This is as good as it gets. You need you to know?
2: say that again. People aren't drawn in because they don't see anything in our relationship with God that makes them want to come. If you're telling
0: me, oh, you're missing out because you need to have this great. Look, you know, if we're doing it because that's our mantra, but we're not experiencing the joy. Well, why would I want what you've got?
2: Mm-hmm. It's just a thought. Mm-hmm. Woo. I'm telling you, moving to church. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, hey, uh, Dale, as we come to the end of our time here, where can folks find more information or follow you, maybe social media or websites?
0: Easiest thing to do is just go to the 95 Network website and it's the numbers nine and five. So it's 95network.org. And I'd love for the listeners that we have a couple of pop-ups on the front page there. One's called the Soul Care Essentials and one's called a Healthy Church Assessment that will trigger several responses and things. We would love to help you and connect with you that way. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, just go to Amazon. Amazon can get it to you cheaper than I can. And just go and write the word stalled and then my name, Dale Sellers, and it'll pop up on there. But if you need to reach out, just go to the website and then you can, just, you can email me through the website. And listen, I respond to every email and I take every call. Because I don't want one pastor out there going, I'm at the end of my rope. Mm -hmm. I need help. Let me close by saying this. There was a pastor from Indiana who reached out to me about a year ago. I think he just found us online and sent me this email and basically told me how bad things were in the situation. When the guy felt like a complete and total failure. I go on to discover that what happened was he was actually the administrator of the Christian school and his father had passed and they made him pastor. Had mm. never been trained for it. Mm. And so things were going bad for him. But he reached out to me and he made this statement. He said, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of the rope. I could use some help if you don't mind. So I responded and said, hey, man, I'd love to help you. You want to get on a call? And he made this statement. He said, well, I'm not sure I want to get on a call with you because if I get on a call with you, then I'm admitting I need help. Mm. So I responded by saying this. You can get on a call with me, go to the hospital or the morgue, whichever one you want to choose, but you just can't keep doing what you're doing. And so we ended up connecting. You know, pastors, you just can't keep faking it anymore. Fake it till you make it. It's not in the spiritual gifts. It's not in anywhere in Ephesians 4 to fake it till you make it. We got to be equippers. Mm -hmm. And honestly, you know, I learned this from John Maxwell a long time ago. We teach what we know, but we model who we are. Ooh. Mm. (laughs) And that's what we've been seeing. We've been modeling who we are. So that's who you attract. And so we want to help you. We love pastors. And listen, it's not just lead pastors. If you're on staff, if you're a volunteer, if you're a board member, I mean, We want to help you. And if we don't have the answer you need, we will find it for you because that's a passion of ours at 95 Network.
2: What a fantastic resource for pastors. Thank you for what you do and for encouraging people to get healthy and to do this well.
0: Well, I love pastors and there's no plan B. There's no plan B. The church is it. And right now I say this, the church around the world is very healthy. The church in America has cancer. Mm. so let's get healthy. Let's get healed. Let's deal with our stuff. You don't want to go to a doctor where the doctor goes, oh, I know you have something, but I don't want to tell you. <laughs> let's go ahead and let's deal with it. <laughs> you know That's not going to help you. No. You know That's not healing. Healing's not avoiding. Let's dive in and look, Pastor, I think this is the greatest thing I could say to you today. Jesus is not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. So just start heading in the right direction. You'll experience healing.
1: Mm-hmm. That's fantastic, Dale. Thank you. So we will make sure to put the link to the book in the show notes and a link to the 95 Network in the show notes as well. If you want to hear more from Dale, we've got a couple of education events happening October 3rd at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. There'll be a free online event. And again, October 10th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be doing a 90-minute session where Dale will be presenting on some of the things that he has been talking about today. So Dale, I just echo Shelly, thank you for your work in ministry. It is so needed and just really appreciate that you are a resource out there that we can point folks to and they can find a listening ear and find hope and find
0: healing. So thank you so much. It's been my honor. I love you guys. I appreciate what you're doing. And I love churches. I love pastors. You know, I want to help. And so I'm here. Awesome. Very much appreciated. Well, thank you so much for being here.
2: Matt, That was a fantastic interview with Dale Sellers. What a fantastic guy. What a great organization. They are doing some amazing work that I am super excited to learn more about and to talk more about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was in college for my degree in religion, precisely during the time of the church growth movement. In fact, I had a J-term class. I found my notes on it about six months ago. You know, so those those notes are only like a year old, right? So.
2: (laughs) Yes, only a year. No,
1: that's (laughs) way back from the late 90s. And uh, I found my notes on that class and it was just really fascinating to dig through some of the worksheets and notes from that college course because that was the thrust. That was the emphasis. Your church should be growing. Mm -hmm. We all heard that statement that he mentioned that healthy things grow. And he's like, well, yeah, but cancer grows too. (laughs) So realizing that (laughs) the analogy, it's fine as far as it goes, but don't take it to its extreme. Because I think when you hear healthy things grow, And you see that you're not growing, then there's an assumption that you're not healthy. I mean, if you wanted to parse the logic out, we could even put that into if-then statements, right? (laughs) Yes. But that doesn't follow. That doesn't follow. And we need to learn to embrace that. That's one of the biggest things that stood out to me. What about you? What are some of the pieces from the conversation that really struck you?
2: Yeah, when he was talking about the whole growth thing, I kept thinking, but numerical isn't the only way to grow. Like if your congregation is growing numerically but nobody's growing in their faith or, you know, spiritually, emotionally, then are you really growing in the right way? Mm-hmm. That you can be growing and stay small as long as you're doing the right things. So that really stood out to me. And yeah. then he said, if your congregation is talking about what God has done instead of what God is doing, you are stuck in the past. And I thought, whoo that's a <laughs> that's a powerful statement because I think especially the older I get, it feels like the more the past has a pull. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind myself that my past doesn't define me, it informs me. And I think that's true for congregations as well.
1: Yeah, for those who know me well, I love media. I love music, I love film, I love books, I love storytelling. And there's that old trope in storytelling of those people who are stuck in the past. And I think the most common version of that in storytelling is kind of the high school football hero (laughs) that's stuck in their past. And I think of Napoleon Dynamite's uncle, uh, (laughs) who, who kind of plays that role really well. But, you know, and that's one of the things that I knew early on to not play that role. But as I'm getting older, the recognition that I need to maintain that vigilance to not look at the past and think that best years are behind me because I've seen, and I know I'm talking about people and not necessarily congregations, but I think it's analogous that I have seen people in congregations, older people in congregations in their sixties and even seventies who are just vibrant, People You want to hang out with them. They're constantly learning. They're just great to be around. And so this sense that age has something to do with vitality is not true. I mean, it changes, of course. I mean, as I'm moving through kind of my middle age, gosh, I hate to say that publicly, (laughs) (laughs) but as I move through my middle age. You know, I'm seeing those reductions in energy level and drive and things like that, but it it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that life is over. And we just have this sense in the United States, especially, that young is good, old is bad. And I think we also have that sense that, you know, large is good, small is bad. And so there's that just understanding that we live from here forward. We use the past to inform our present and our future, but we should not live and focus there. And I think that's a good word from him, you know, because we tend to think of smaller congregations and a lot of the smaller congregations that I encounter are a bit older in age as well. Average ages are more on the higher side, but that doesn't mean that you can't be a healthy, vibrant living place where really cool things are happening.
2: Agreed. Agreed. And as you get in kind of that older stage, your middle age, for a lot of us, we have adult kids now, which always seems like a weird way to think about my own children. Like when I say adult kid, that just doesn't seem to go, but I don't know how else to say it. My own children are grown adults. (laughs) And so there's room for me to learn. There's room for me to volunteer. There's room for me to do things different than I could do 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that opens up a whole realm of possibility for older congregations too.
1: Yeah. Well, like we talked about on the front end of the episode, we talked about assets. And I think that's an often overlooked asset that even though I'm in my middle age, we still have relatively young kids. We've got a 14 and an 11-year-old at home. And so there's a lot of constraints around our time. But mm-hmm. thinking about once they're grown and have, you know, are in college or have their own families or whatever, the time that we will have to invest in things. And I wonder if we miss that point sometimes that there's so much opportunity just in time to be able to be active in the community or active in your congregation or active in your local hospital whatever it is in some way shape or form and those things are extensions of your congregational ministry
2: they are they are you also have a little more discretionary money <laughs> Goes without saying. <laughs> Maybe not a lot, but yeah, you can, it's like, wow, we're not paying for meals out and baseball games and football games right. and, you know, yep. whatever. So, yeah, I think your life just looks different. So for these congregations that are small, but they have an older population, it feels to me like there's unlimited possibility mm-hmm. in assets and things that they could still do. Yep, Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Another thing that stood out to me in that conversation is at one point he was talking about how older congregations will sometimes hire in younger people or younger ministers, but that can be problematic. And I vividly remember a small congregation in a town southwest of where I'm at right now that the pastor called, wanted to speak with me. So I went down to visit and I think he was in his mid thirties and he said, you know, they hired me in here because they wanted some vibrancy and vitality, but they won't let me do anything. (laughs) They won't let me make any changes. And so there was just this real frustration that there was the fact that they hired this young pastor, but then there was the ongoing conflict of they didn't want to make any changes based on what he thought would be a positive direction for the congregation. And so remembering that we need to learn from younger people that, yes, we may have wisdom that they don't, But on the other hand, they have energy that we don't. And they have ideas that we're unaware of. I think of the time that I spend in some online spaces where my son spends time. There's a whole different language. And even I'm learning a whole different English syntax, like a whole different (laughs) word order that is being used. And if I wasn't in that space, I wouldn't know that. And it literally would put me in a place where I could not talk to younger people in a way that feels comfortable to them. Yep. And that's just one small piece of how we interact with younger generations, and let alone the different worldview, the different things that they've grown up with. I mean, my 14 year old was in the beginning of middle school when the pandemic started. That shaped him mm-hmm. in ways that it did not shape me. And I need to pay attention to how he developmentally changed because of that huge event in our lives and learn from what he needs because of moving through that big social and cultural crisis.
2: Yeah. Oh, man, that's such good advice. That's such good advice. And I look back, like, for my kids, and I hear the things they say about the faith, and I hear the things they say about their walk with God, and I'm like, you know, I kind of helped shape that, and that's not really the best point of view. And so, I find myself <laughs> like, well, okay, that didn't go so well. <laughs> How do we not that they were mistakes. We were doing the best that we could as we were guiding you know, them through. But as I grow in my faith and they grow in theirs, it's just interesting to see how it all lands. And I think, like you said, if I don't listen to them, if I don't pay attention, then I just go on assuming everything is good and right. And in some places it is, but in other places I'm like, ooh, we need to pivot. That is not what I was hoping you would learn. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, learning from each other. That's really what it's all about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things to me growing up, just how we need to have humility about the things that we once believed but no longer do and have an awareness of that. It feels like well, that's what you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, but then also having the humility to walk back some things and say, you know, when you were kids, this is how we talked about this thing and how we raised you. But I actually think a little bit differently about that now. Yeah. And let's have a conversation about that.
2: And I think that's really healthy. One Mm -hmm. of the things I used to say as a youth pastor is we're trying to build people with faith like a trampoline and not Mm -hmm. faith like a brick wall, because you need to be able to move and bounce and understand that your theology might shift over the years as you learn more and you see more. And it doesn't mean that what you used to believe is wrong. It just means that, you know, okay, maybe I see it differently now, or maybe I'm learning, or maybe God is showing me, hey, there's more to this than what you used to think. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right, Matt. We need to have the humility to know I'm still learning and that there are things that I see wrong. And there are things, you know, in small congregations we see wrong. There are things in big congregations we see wrong. And there are things we see right. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But to have the ability to shift and move is so important, especially in that smaller congregational space. To have the ability to shift and move and to give each other room to have some differences is really Mm -hmm. important.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we could have talked to Dale for probably another several hours and Shelly and I could probably (laughs) debrief even that much more about the interview, but we'll go ahead and move forward. But we just hope that you were encouraged by that conversation, that you are encouraged by our conversation. Our president shares this cartoon from a long time ago, and I don't remember the author of it, but it's a doctor just telling a patient, there's nothing wrong with you that what's right can't fix. Mm. And that sense that we have this opportunity to grow, to shift and to change and to look at things differently, to learn what it means to be healthy rather than being great in numbers or great in size. I just think that's so important. And hopefully we'll share some resources now that are also encouraging and helpful for you if you are a small to mid-sized congregation and you're in that space. So Shelly, what did you want to bring to the table today?
2: So there's a man by the name of Carl Vaders. I'm sure some of you know about Carl, but he has a website Carl Vaders, and it's K-A-R-L-V-A-T-E-R-S dot com. And Carl's written several books. He's got a blog, and he speaks to small churches. One of his books is called Small Church Essentials. Another one, I love this one, The Grasshopper Myth. Big churches, small churches, and the small thinking that divides us. So just, I think, a fantastic resource for churches that are smaller numerically.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of Carl. He's actually been on the podcast and done some education events for us. And, you know, the interesting thing about him is you find out that he's from Orange County, California, and you're like, wait a second, what do you mean small (laughs) church? But the story of his congregation is that they're just landlocked and they can't afford to purchase any more land because it's such an expensive place. So they're just constrained by size. And for many years, they have just been content with that. And so it's just beautiful to listen to his perspectives and his stories. So we'll make sure to have his website in the show notes for today. So you can check out podcasts, blogs, books that he's written, all kinds of things. Just big fans of Carl Bader's. So I'd like to mention the Thriving Rural Communities from Duke Divinity School. It's a place where you can find information. They've got rural ministry fellowships that have scholarships available. They've got programs on strengthening rural ministry. They've got some events. There's one coming up. It's called Convocation on the Rural Church. By the time this episode releases, that will probably be in the past. But just so you know, they do offer events like that. And they're preaching and speaking opportunities, other programs and resources available. So I know that Duke Divinity School is working on this as well. I can't speak for them, but I can speak for us that you heard in the interview, Dale talked about 95% of churches in the United States are under 500. 75% are under 100 in membership. And so for us as an organization, our eyes have been open to that reality. And so we are trying to shift our focus as well. And perhaps Duke is doing that also to recognize that most of the people in the United States are in a church that is of that size. And so we want to be a resource for congregations like that. So check out Carl Vader's, check out Duke Divinity School. I also want to do a callback to a previous episode that we did with Alan Stanton. Who wrote a book called "Reclaiming Rural: Building Thriving Rural Congregations"? And it was a delight to talk to him. So I'd have you take a look back in our catalog and check out that episode. We had a, really had a good conversation with Alan Stanton and his book on reclaiming rural. Did you have anything else you wanted to bring?
2: Yeah, I just think for sure check out 95 Network, which is Dale's organization. Yes, one of the things they do is several one-day conferences there's three listed on their website right now. One is Blueprint for a Healthy Church, one is Small Church Strategies, and one is Soul Care Essentials Conference, which is about the pastor and lay leaders, your personal life. And so I think those are just some fantastic resources from 95 Ministries. Lots of other good stuff on their website too, though.
1: Yeah, I want to let you know that we're inviting Dale Sellers to do some education events with the Center for Congregation. So on October 3rd, at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time, he'll be doing a 90-minute live online education event. This is 2023, by the way, so if you're hearing this <laughs> in 24, sorry, you missed it. But he'll also be doing an event for us on October 10th, 2023 at 6 p.m. We are also trying to skew some of our ed events to the evening because we are aware that smaller congregations, often your leadership is bivocational, so we want to be able to make room for that. So we have those events coming up. We would love to see you in those Zoom meeting sessions. All right. Well, that'll do it for another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. We thank you for being here. We also want to thank the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. We would not be here if it weren't for their generosity in supporting us. So thank you to the Lilly Endowment.
2: And we'd like to ask you to go ahead and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, if that's on Apple or Spotify or the million other platforms, none of which I know, but I will learn, (laughs) (laughs) like to ask you to follow us and rate and review that way it's easier for other people to find us.
1: We also want to let you know you can reach out to us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org and we'd love to hear from you. We do monitor that podcast and we've heard some great ideas about podcast episodes and guests. So we would love to hear your thoughts and ideas on episodes that you've heard or future episodes that you're interested in.
2: And like to remind you about our website that has a lot of resources. It's called the CRG the crg.org especially if you're listening to this podcast and you want more resources for small congregations jump on the crg.org there are lots of great resources we curate that keep it up to date and it's much easier to find things because it's all specific to congregations whereas google you're going to get well maybe things you don't want to go look at so (laughs) on the crg.org you will find things specific to congregations
1: Yeah, and as a reminder, we as a staff have our eyes on every single resource that's on the CRG. We have consciously put them there because we think they are good options and opportunities for learning and for growth. They are not a one size fits all. They are not just picked from anywhere. We really think that they will be resources that will be helpful for your congregation. We would be remiss if we didn't mention Jaden, our engineer and editor. Jaden, appreciate you making us sound good on this podcast.
2: like to give our weekly geographical shout out to the folks that are listening to us in Scottsburg, Indiana. Excited to have you here and wanted to say hey.
1: Yep, we see you warriors and warriorettes. Thanks for listening.
2: Go purple. <laughs>
1: So for the Center for Congregations, thanks for listening.
2: I'm Matt Burke. And I'm Shelley Riggs-Jordan. Have a great day.